0: in YIF. I think this writing skill is really going to keep you going. And, and the fact that YIF has planned this year-long writing, I don't know what it's called, workshop running, I think it's one of the biggest learnings, biggest learnings that you have.
1: You're listening to The Professor Will See You Now, the second season of the YIF Podcast. This season, we bring you exclusive conversations with YIF faculty about their journey, the discipline they teach, and the ideas that drive them. The Young India Fellowship is a -a one-of-a-kind year-long postgraduate diploma in Liberal Studies at Ashoka University. Ever since its inception a decade ago, the YIF has helped young individuals explore diverse areas of study and practice, discover their passions, switch career paths meaningfully, grow further as a working professional, create sustainable impact to solve problems at the core of our society. All of this while belonging to a global community of fellows. The second episode will feature Professor A.K. Shufkumar, Kumar, who did his PhD from Harvard University and teaches the course Economics and Public Policy at the YIF. The episode will be hosted by Amruta Datla from the class of 2019. She's currently an associate with the Chief Minister's Office, Haryana.
2: Thank you, Professor Shiv, for agreeing to do this with us. So, um, I think I'll jump right into it. I hope you've braced yourself for this question because I think this is something that people ask you all the time. You know, when you were, in, were studying, I think uh, working with corporates and these big organizations was all the time. But I think you made it pretty clear very early on that it wasn't your cup of tea and you wanted to work with development and management of that. So I wanted to understand uh, what was the basis for that decision? What made you take that decision and what were the things that motivated you to go into that space?
0: Thanks, Amrita. I think when you asked the question, uh, uh, how did you decide uh that the regular corporate world wasn't your cup of tea. I thought that's a very easy answer because when I started disliking tea and switched to coffee would be the easy way out of that. Uh, but you also asked me what what made you change. And uh, it's very interesting because, you know, uh, like I might have, you might recall that I had done my economics honors and then I did my MA and I went into IIM Ahmedabad with no work experience. I mean, we were only, I think, two or three of us who had done MA, but otherwise... Uh, I mean, I was among those who had done, had no work experience compared to many of my friends and engineers who had at least worked for a year. So you really don't know what you're getting into. It's a new language, new vocabulary, completely unnerving, and you're sometimes wondering why you're asked to study production management. Uh, you know, why am I balancing man-machine chart? Look at the gender insensitivity of those generations. Uh, but it, it was only men on the shop floor, so Gantt chart and Pert charts. And I said, what the hell, where have I come, kind of thing. And so so the same kind of uh, same kind of questions that you might have also wondered after finishing your undergrad or, or before coming to YIF. And the same type of same sort of questions you went leaving YIF. So why, why, what did I do? Why what did I come here for? But, but you know, a turning point. So, so of course, I was a very good, uh, I mean, very sincere student. And so I, I tried to absorb as much. And I, I might have mentioned that I I got a summer job, which is quite coveted, with a company called, in those days, called Cheesebro Ponds. Uh, this was uh, it, it was an American multinational, later merged with Unilever, that makes Ponds uh, Dream Flower Talc and Ponds Cold Cream and Ponds Vanishing Cream. This Vanishing Cream, for those of you who are in the North, I don't think that idea is popular because it's a, it's a very South Indian. Uh, South Indian notion of vanishing uh, cream because I know a lot of uh, men who who are sort of uh, uh, not, not uh, uh, I won't use the correct word for it, they're not fair enough.
2: <laughs>
0: <laughs> so the way to use vanishing cream is to put a nice layer of vanishing cream on men. Even men did that on your face and put talcum powder on it. Uh, and with a layer of talcum powder, you, you appeared fairer uh, than you really yeah. were. <laughs> Unfortunately, it was just a complexion and nothing to do with your sense of values or anything. So, <laughs> so, so my first job was in the summer program. They, uh, when I went there, the managing director and the uh, top management met, her, met me and said, they want to introduce three new brands of uh, uh, vanishing cream and cold cream, uh, because they had only one, uh, uh, Ch- uh, Mogra, Rose and Sandalwood. And they said, uh, we would like you to test market this, do a whole, you know, figure out what it is, what people like, how much they are willing to pay. So it was almost building a product strategy, brand strategy, advertising strategy, everything for that in eight weeks. And so it was quite a challenge. And that, they took me to the factory, Pond's factory. And there I discovered for the first time that when you make sun silk shampoo with eggs, you know, I don't know if you've seen, I don't know if those ads are there, but they really show an egg being cracked on the hair of this lovely woman and then next they show large black flowing hair and so on. Really, there's no egg, egg <laughs> in egg shampoo and it's only essence of egg or extracts of egg that they put in. So that came as a bit of a shock to me because I thought that they really have, really have eggs <laughs> which they mix up with the shampoo. Uh, nothing like that happens. So I took the samples from them. They gave me lots of samples. And then I uh, went and recruited four young uh, college girls from a uh, college next door. And uh, I was all of uh, 21 those days. So uh, I think uh, that, that was a high point in my recruitment career. <laughs> so I <did. laughs> and then sent them off with samples to leave in households. And then I myself went to beauty parlors in all the high-end hotels Left samples, uh, talked to the owners and beauticians there, left samples, and then went back after two weeks, collected all the information, blah, 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 blah. And then, of course, I had everything, and I did a presentation, much appreciated, and so on. I think that was the summer job, which uh, everyone thought was uh, you know fantastic. Shiv, you know, uh, like I said, the others had less challenging jobs of data collection. Uh, I mean data collection jobs are really appreciated in the summer because uh, you know data really stood for daily allowance and traveling allowance. So so if you got a job that meant you traveled around, then you were good enough to collect your daily allowance for travel and data and traveling allowance. So that's what that those were the more attractive jobs, not the ones I did. But the second year, first year were all compulsory courses. But in the second year, I uh, got uh, got to meet with a lot of uh, visiting faculty, uh, different types of courses, uh, and then I really started reflecting on: Is that really what I want to do in life? I mean, it was a very nice job in in the sense of a real corporate job, and the probability that they would have hired me in the regular uh, made a job offer was also good and then when i spoke to some of the visiting faculty members and i think that was a that was a major uh, turning point in my own thinking that i am really not cut out for this kind of a corporate job and so so that was one the second is that these people the visiting faculty who came and also when you were a little more confident of talking to your faculty members you know you meet very important you know influential thought leaders uh, you know there's dr kamla chaudhry ravi mathai samuel paul were all thinking about development, they were talking about rural development, they were talking about innovative universities, they were worried about the handlooms and handicraft sector, and, and then you start wondering, you know, I was deeply influenced by many of them, so that was another thing that I didn't want to join the corporate sector, and these people were really uh, talking about something very meaningful and purposeful and of course uh, that that really made me uh, you know the, like i said the first job uh, four of us from my class uh, joined a non-profit uh, management consulting group out of delhi and that again was uh, led by a person called uh, dr nath ncb nath who was a visiting faculty member nath had a very interesting career i don't know if some of you i think it was generations ago there's a man called prakash tandon who became the first indian uh, chairman of uh, Hindustan hindustan He was the first indian chairman really legendary figure in the corporate world as uh, a really fantastic then uh, dr nath at that time was the uh, chief economist and worked very closely with prakash chandan then prakash chandan was one of the early ones who moved as chairman of state trading corporation from a top private sector job to a public sector job and uh, dr nath had moved as commercial director STC. So these two were really moving from place to place. And Dr. Nath then became commercial director of uh, Steel Authority of India. So those were the high level jumps. So, so Dr. Nath and a bunch of us started talking about this idea of setting up this management. So he was sort of a big influence in my life and we moved there. But to just close the story on why I would not have worked in the corporate sector is that even after I joined Fair, uh, there were a lot of ethical questions that were bothering me.
2: I think it, it's really important because it helps us really look at uh, our own approaches to these things as well so um, after uh, the Indian Institute of Management I'm sure there were like a few things in your head that told you what was the right thing to do and what wasn't the right thing to do so how would you characterize your journey after Ahmedabad and to where you are today how has that been like?
0: Yeah, you know, let me let me uh, say, you know, since you raised that question of how I moved into my first job, uh, I just want to reflect a little bit on, you know, uh, what the two or three major learnings were, because you know, some of you uh, might have might be in your first jobs, and and I was very lucky, like I said, to work with uh, Dr. N.C. Binard, great mind. Uh, yeah. So, uh, so like I might have told some of you, it depend doesn't depend on the company. That you join it depends on your first boss. Uh, is he really somebody who's uh, who's not insecure? Somebody who's uh, who's mentoring you? Who sees a role that it's his responsibility to mentor young people? I think that I was really fortunate. I was really fortunate because I stayed on in Fair for about seven and a half years, uh, became the chief executive officer, starting as a management trainee. But all those seven and a half years of working closely with uh, Dr. Nath were years of great learning. So that is one. Second one I want to say is that so that you're so it doesn't depend on the company, but depends on your first boss. So second is that you have to make yourself indispensable to the organization and the question is how do you make yourself indispensable especially if it's a small organization or if you're in a small team i think as my first job there i would say i would really make myself indispensable and the secret of making yourself indispensable is to do what no one else wants to do <laughs> and i think if you catch on to that then then sky is the limit in terms of your career growth uh, but the moment you signal to somebody that oh well you know why should i do this i really joined this organization to be doing this now you're telling me to do that uh, you know i didn't i don't want to look at accounts uh, but now since the accountant is gone you're telling me to look at the accounts also the moment you have that on the other hand if you you do everything else then it's really huge and that's the third point which i want to make you have to be in a very very uh, what should i say a frantic learning mode <laughs> and when i say do what others don't want to do okay accountant is not there no problem i'll sit and write the books of accounts for half an hour every day no problem don't crib on what you are asked to do uh, pick up tips and ideas from your mentor or your leader on how to become a, how to lead how, what, you know what are the nice things that he's doing? How did he conduct the meeting? So every day you have to be in that sort of learning mode in your first year, second year, uh, third year, and so on and so forth. So so I think if you if those things if you keep in mind, I'm sure some of you are so frustrated, you' are saying, oh God, you also have some chief ministers, something. I mean, it sounds very very high chief minister and all that, but uh, but it is very frustrating. but but those moments of frustration are also great moments of learning. And not to give up and to be persevering is, is uh, very important. But I have to say something funny. You know, so, so this office, organization was called Foundation to Aid Industrial Recovery Fair. And uh, in those days, uh, the joke in uh, our IIM class, we were four of us and next year we went and recruited eight more. So we were 12 of us from IIM Ahmedabad, you know, our junior batch. Uh, so the joke was, Shiv, if you ever uh, join the United Nations, Uh, then this will become very unfair. (laughs) (laughs) And and, and as luck would have it, as luck would have it, in those days, nobody knew what the United Nations was. But as luck would have it, I've spent the last 35 years working very closely with the United Nations. Some might think that's a very unfair thing to do.
2: (laughs) Absolutely. You know, Professor Ashley, I wanted to kind of ask you something about, something you just said, you know, about Uh, being ready to do whatever it takes and being ready to offer support to the organization wherever it needs. I think one thing that young professionals or something I also personally struggle with is to draw a line as to when you can say no versus what are the things that you should be working on or what will add value to the firm. But I think in the process, we all face that dilemma where we're not sure whether we should be pushed into doing something that we're not very Something that doesn't be, that doesn't feel like a learning experience anymore. So, how do you think we make that distinction?
0: Yeah. See, I think uh, you know one of the things that you need is huge patience, and and you have to really mark time. And see what is the value of learning. I mean, if you're not learning anything, then of course you should uh, you should quit. I mean, that's not what I'm saying. It's horrible to go to work every morning, wake up, and go into a work situation where it's horrible. So that's not the point. But you have to. You cannot give up so easily. Uh, you know, one of my uh, one of the things I learned from uh, Dr. Nath was how to write. He was great. You know, if you're in consultancy, you have to write. If you can't write, you can't get any money. I mean, now, in those days, it used to be writing. Now, of course, if you can't do a PowerPoint presentation, you can't get any money. And one of my uh, horrible, most horrible memories of uh, Dr. Nath and, you know, there's another colleague, two of us. There was this project on how to revive Sikh industries for Punjab National Bank. Three people had started working on it for two years. They all left the organization. It was all in shambles. So Dr. Nath called the two of us and said, Shiv, I want you to, and Raj, I want both of you to complete the report. And uh, so, like I said, uh, there's nobody else. So I said, yeah, yeah, we'll do it and all that. He said, I won't bother you for eight weeks, six weeks. You please do it. So every two weeks or so, we'll submit something. And Dr. Nath, oh, excellent. Uh, sh- used to call it Shiv Kumar Saab and Raj- Bhatia Saab. Oh, excellent, excellent. Oh, chairman is saying excellent, excellent. You know, we plodded along Then after eight weeks. In those days, we had to handwrite reports because, you know, the typists and all were very so few. So we hand wrote this report of 200 pages and I had a very good handwriting. So I had to write Uh, Raj and I, uh, you know, and we gave it to Dr. Nant and he called us and I gave it to him on Thursday. He said, "Why don't to come home for a cup of coffee on Saturday afternoon and we'll talk. So I go there, the two of us, you know, we submitted the report on Thursday afternoon. And of course we, I had a Barsati. So you know what Raj and I did in the Barsati after submitting the report. We we had our, we, had, we got tanked up and quite a, quite high on our enthusiasm. Now this is all over. And so we go on Saturday night uh, evening to Dr. Nath who makes himself, a, gives us a nice cup of coffee. And he says, uh, Shiv Kumar Sahib, Bhatia Sahib, Uh, Thank you for giving this report. Uh, I've gone through it. Uh, But uh, you know what? He took the report and threw it into the dustbin. (laughs) (laughs) So we are both staring at each other. He said, I never expected this from the two of you. This report makes no sense. It has no head. It has no ending. It has nothing. There is no analysis. You have just copied, cut and pasted. I didn't want this report from you. And after all these six weeks of saying, excellent, excellent, Shishkumar sahab, excellent, very good, very good, did all that. You know, we are right on top. And uh, you know what we did that evening when we went back to my Barsadi? <laughs> we got more drunk than we were on Thursday, Thursday evening. And we said, uh, Monday morning, we are going to resign. <laughs> this, is, this is not how we need a leader or mentor. But of course, you know how we are. We said, no, 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 we can't. Monday, Sunday evening, we assembled it. We said, no, 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 no. You know, we can't give up like this. How can we that? And we went back. We rewrote the report. It was fantastic. But you know, these kinds of things where you, you are pushed. And so when you say that you're frustrated, you know, should we stay there? Should we not stay there? When you're pushed into things that you are not required to do, you don't know how to do. And if you do them, you get critic, criticized, but you come out successful. It is such an accomplishment.
2: Great. Uh, so I'm going to come to like, the next big thing that we wanted to talk about. I think it's common knowledge to everybody that your supervisor while you were at Harvard was the Amatya Sen. And I think lot, uh, in fact, he has no access to who he was as an individual outside of the work that he had done. So I was hoping you could share some insights about him, how he was like, how it was for you to work with him. Any sort of funny incidents that you can remember even today?
0: Yeah, you know, I was actually very lucky because when I went to Harvard in 1986, uh, Amartya came to uh, uh, Harvard, moved from Trinity College to Harvard also in eight, early 87. So and that's when uh, I met him and I had never met him in my life before 87. I mean, everybody knew of him. Uh, uh, but then a common professor of mine knew him, knew Amartya well, and introduced me to him. And uh, uh, of course, uh, he's, he was very happy that I was working on India and stuff like that. And he's he saying, but a few things, you know, again, like I said, when you're working with people like this or interacting, you have to constantly learn about, uh, you know, that's why I said, you know, you have to be in a constant learning mode. Yeah. On whether it is, yeah. and I think uh, a few things uh, that I wanted to say some, about at a personal level. I mean, he's a great intellectual, philosopher, humanist. Uh, but one is, he's extremely proud of his Indian citizenship. He's still, he still, uh, you know, wherever he is taught, uh, he tells his audience of, often that as an Indian, he has to wait for several hours in different embassies to get visas, like you and I. Uh, but he doesn't grudge that at all. So I think he's very, very proud to be an Indian. Uh, and I'm flagging that because many of the others who have got Nobel Prize and others are not real. They've all switched nationality. I mean, we're very proud of those that they have Indian origins. Uh, you know, he's also been called frequently as the conscience keeper of the world of economics, Mother Teresa of economics, and all. So I think I really respect his. Uh, but but you know. Apart from being a brilliant teacher, by the way, if you sit, if you hear any of his students, he's an absolutely brilliant teacher, but he also epit- epitomizes for me the classic argumentative Indian. You know, this is the title of his book, uh, and I've seen this happening in the classroom, in seminars, in most informal conversations. Uh, Sen will listen to everybody with rapt attention, even if he doesn't agree with the views being expressed. And at the end, he will systematically explain the reasons for his agreement disagreement, very eloquently describe this uh, position, and typically the audience is quite mesmerized uh, by the it. And I've often wondered why doesn't he simply reject the opinions of others uh, and say what he has to say. But that's not Sen, because Sen believes in what he preaches That for the success of secular politics, uh, deepening of democracy, pursuit of peace, uh, solutions can be found not by dismissing arguments or suppressing dissent and disagreement, uh, but by promoting public reasoning and and encouraging public debates. And I think he's a great practitioner of this. Of course, he means uh, different things to different people. Some Bengalis, of course, worship him like a god with some kind of supernatural powers, uh, paradoxically. Uh, Sen is an atheist. (laughs) So, uh, and I'll I'll tell you one incident. Um, I was traveling with him after he won his Nobel Prize, soon after he won his Nobel Prize from Calcutta to Shantini by train. And, you know, lots of people would come for autographs and, you know, uh, and uh, all that kind of thing. Uh, But this is an unforgettable incident when some kind of a devotee uh, thrust a pen in Amartya's hand. And so Amartya is holding the pen. And he says, uh, where is the paper or where is the book? What do you want to, me to sign? So this man says, I do not want your autograph, sir. Just touch the pen and bless it. And I'm sure my son will pass his exam. <laughs> so, you know, he, you know, you know, this is precisely the sort of uh that he has the greatest aversion for. You know, uh, and if, if somebody will ask you, uh, he say, say, How's your wife?' You know, she's not well, but God willing, she will become all right." Uh, so he will say, "You know, I'm sure the medical doctors will do a better job." <laughs> you know, that kind of thing. So he's sort of always reminding one not to be, not to be, uh, and how to be careful not to use this. Uh... And he wears his uh, fame and. Uh, uh, very lightly, and uh, he, if you can, really allow me to say another f- funny incident that happened with him. He always recounts with a chuckle. It seems he was walking back to his hotel from a conference in Hanover, Germany, and he decided, like many of us would do, to cross the street, uh, knowing full well that pedestrian crossing uh, during a red light traffic was not allowed. Right? We Indians <laughs> v- v- will do that, but normally not. Uh, so he, he says that there was no car in sight in any direction whatsoever. And I send decides that after 100 seconds of solitude, that it's extremely stupid and they're doing nothing without even a car to watch. So he says not that there was, uh, you know, there's even the danger of my of his not being counted any longer as a proper Indian if he did not take law into his own hands uh, when needed. Uh, who knows, he says, he writes, I might even lose my Indian citizenship if I don't behave like an Indian. So he starts crossing the road, but then a gentleman on the other side of the street expresses his extreme displeasure and remarks. Professor Sen, in Germany, a pedestrian has to wait uh, when the light is red. This is our rule, Professor Sen. Now, Sen admits he was sufficiently impressed by the reprimand, uh, but even more impressed that his fame had reached as far as Hanover to be recognized at a street corner by a person saying Professor Sen. Uh, Thinking that he ought to be nice to this distant friend, he asks the critic, uh, remind me uh, where we met the last time? To which the gentleman from Hanover replied, we have never met and have no clue who you are. But you're wearing your conference badge with your name on it. <laughs> so, so the moral of the story, according to said, is name recognition can indeed be an uncertain guide to fame. <laughs> so you know he has a great sense of he has a great sense of uh, humor, and and I think he wears his uh, fame very very uh, lightly. And I think uh, you know. I mean, there are lots of stories that he, every book, if you read, has some interesting story and so on. Yeah, so, so that's, uh, that's pretty much, I mean, I can go on about Sen. There's another story. I think if you read the book called Identity and Violence, it's a very good book about, you know, where he talks about multiple identities of people. So you're not just a woman, you know, you're a woman in one place, but you might be poor, you might be a corporate official, you might be a mother, you might be a sister, you might become a mother. So we have different multiple identities, and he really takes objection to you being branded a Scheduled caste or me branded a Muslim or a Hindu. He says, you know, this branding is not good. And in his book, he has a very nice, I'll just take a minute to tell you a story um, that I'm Could read out from his book, he says, there is an interesting lesson in an old Italian story from the 1920s when support for fascist politics, I mean it's just contemporary as well, it was not just in the 1920s, when support for fascist politics was spreading rapidly across Italy concerning a political recruiter from the fascist party arguing with a rural socialist that he should join the fascist party instead. So how can I, said the potential recruit, join your party? My father was a socialist. My grandfather was a socialist. I cannot really join the fascist party. So the fascist recruiter says, what kind of an argument is this? What would you have done? He asks the rural socialist. If your father had been a murderer and your grandfather had also been a murderer, what would you have done? Ah, said the potential recruit or the rural socialist, then, of course, I would have joined the fascist party. <laughs> so, so you know, so he says it's so true that the freedom to assert our personal identities uh, can be sometimes be extraordinarily limited in the eyes of others. So, so, you know, these small parables and stories are really his way of communicating and he's got a great sense of humor. So let me stop there. Yeah.
2: No, I think, As students, we also really enjoy when these things can be said and how humor really becomes an important part of a classroom. I think that's something we experienced in your classes as well. And like I was saying in the beginning of the call, the the kind of things that you choose to discuss to show us the different facets of life or how things work. I think that's something we all also really enjoy. So thank you so much for that. So since we're talking about Amartya Sen and Harvard, I have a question to ask you, which I think thousands of youngsters today are asking, which is to say that all of us are running after international degrees and Ivy League universities and things like that. So I really want to know what do they teach at Harvard or Yale or Princeton? <laughs> but they don't absolutely teach in India. Like, what
0: is <laughs> okay? I'm glad you expanded the. I don't have much to say about Yale and Princeton. I don't have no experience. Uh, but let me let me uh, just my own exposure there, both as a student uh, and as a teacher. The first thing I learned, uh, you know, I am Ahmedabad was a great eye opener because we knew about class participation and all that kind of thing. Uh, but mind you, in till my MA in economics, uh, I had never opened my mouth in class. There was no need to. And you know, these professors would dictate notes, and I would take down the notes. And and you know, I in my economics honors, I was uh, I was got the first rank, and I was equally on top in, in my MA in economics. So it's uh, nothing about learning. Uh, but I could never; we were never asked allowed to talk, and that's a big difference. Second is, we I knew everything in the textbook. I had done my MA in economics, but when I went to take courses in economics and public policy at the Kennedy School, I realized I had, I knew no economics uh, because uh, we are just taught how to look at the textbook and you know you solve equations and so on, but in a conversational kind of way. We never talk about economics and applications. So that was a big and a big challenge as a student. As a teacher, I, I mean, my entire—I mean, I I had never taught till I became a PhD student and started teaching, uh, you know, as a teaching assistant and research fellow and so on and so forth. Uh, But really, the skill of teaching is something that I really owe to Harvard. And and uh, and like I said, watching Amartya in class or watching others in class, you really have to pick up the tips on how do you how do you you know how do you make the class interesting and so on, Uh, and you know. Yeah, I think, I think the last thing which I think I would say what you'd learn at Harvard, which we don't uh, learn at India, uh, uh, is at Harvard, like even in the Indian School of Business, they'll ask me and I'll say, uh, at Harvard, every student in my class knows to read and write. And uh, at ISB, I tell them, I'm not at all sure about your class. Uh, because, you know, a uh, majority of them would be engineers who are not required to read and write. I mean, they have a very different way of communication. And I say that with the real uh, saying that if one skill you have to pick up, uh, which I think most of you have done in YIF, I think this writing skill is really going to keep you going. And, and the fact that YIF has planned this year-long writing, I don't know what it's called, workshop uh, running, I think it's one of the biggest learnings biggest learnings that you have uh, in the indian school of business i keep asking them what did you learn what are the three big learnings they will say doing powerpoint presentations is number one uh, working in groups is number two and three networking as number three nobody says <laughs> that i learned marketing or i learned finance or those are not the skills so so i think this reading writing habit is something which you pick up at harvard very easily and that's uh, important yeah
2: So I think it's safe to say that uh, if you've gone to the YIF, you don't have to go to Harvard. Is that what we can take away from this conversation? To an extent, yes. (laughs) Of course. (laughs) I'm going to be saving a lot of money for my my family. But thank you. Thank you for that. Um, So let's talk a little bit about the YIF. I think uh, something that a lot of fellows wonder is... You know, how is it that a professor of such great stature is teaching such a basic econ course at Ashoka? I think you've been asked this question before and I'm sure you have a very good reason. So I'm very curious about that.
0: No, I I think there are just uh, three reasons. Uh, First of all, I think people like me uh, do have a mission. And and an obligation is for me to give back to society what I have been fortunate to learn. And I think one way of doing it is to engage uh, with young people and and I think uh, in that sense the crowd that you are in YF is ex- exceptionally different. Uh, just like I would say the mid-career program at Harvard is exceptionally different. you know the diversity, the backgrounds, the curiosity, the interest. So YF is a fascinating group. It is much more interesting than teaching to any other group of youngsters who are all uh, you know very similar. you're so dissimilar. Each one of you is not, you cannot find two identical YIF students. And I think that's really my attraction. The second one is, of course, uh, you know, how do you build a program and a brand name for YIF? And I think when I make an investment like this, you know, I taught in Indian School of Business for 13, 14 years. So, like they say, Lambi Dor ka hai or something, uh, you said Hindi ka viturai so I'm not a guy who's going to come for one year, two years and run away. Uh, no. So, so you have to make that investment in the institution, in the program. Uh, think along with, I remember when uh, uh, Pramath uh, put together, I was part of uh, Andre Bete's was the academic leader, coordinator. But we all thought intensively about what is the curriculum for why, uh, what should be the curriculum for Ashoka undergrad. So we invest in that. So I think I'm really very proud to be associated with uh, YIF uh, in this. Uh, so looking forward to coming back. And of course, you know that I'm a mad uh, teacher because uh, this year was a big relief, not a big relief, a relief and a disappointment. Uh, because you know, I teach three sections of 100 each and I do six hours of teaching. You know that, you know, it is uh, 9 to 11, some 11.30 to one thirty, and then 3 to 5 or something. And the teaching assistants will tell you, I don't have a sip of water. I don't have uh, anything to eat. And like I told you, the last section is always the best section. (laughs) All the mistakes you make in the first section, you sort of correct it in the second section. You know what works or what doesn't work. And by the the third section, the jokes just flow naturally.
2: (laughs) Or is it? Is it? I mean, does it have something to do with the coffee
0: before the third section? No coffee, nothing before. <laughs> the, it's all after. <laughs> uh,
2: one thing that you keep talking is how we should stick to something that we believe in, how to hold our ethics at a greater, you know, uh, level than anything else, or how we can continue to keep those ethics personally and professionally. So I just wanted to understand if you had any uh, remarks about that, about how that process can be strengthened or how our faith in oneself can be strengthened.
0: There are three things that you have to find a balance if you really want to enjoy what you're doing. And I think looking at my face and my career and so on, you know that I enjoy what I do. You have to get the balance between the personal, uh, which is what I've been talking about, uh, between the professional, that is you have a sense of accomplishment and so on, the personal, uh, professional and the political. And I say political not in the not in politics, politics sense, but what are you doing in life? What are you aiming for? What is your, you know, what is what makes you feel happy as part of a mission that you are accomplishing? You know, that is the mission. And I think the, the thing that I like about YAF is all of you have come into YAF looking for that purpose. So the so that's the political for me. You know, it's not just just ordinary students. There's a political mission, there's a purpose, it's beyond commitment, there's a passion, uh, and that you really want to make a difference, and that you should never lose. So, so if you balance the personal, the professional, the professional is now you're saying, what degree should I get? How do I make a m- major contribution? So you are going through the professional questions. Two years later, three years later, you will be struggling with the pr- personal questions that I had had. Whom should I get married to? What do my parents say? What do the community say? Blah, blah, blah. You know how do you how do you establish that? So we are constantly in this uh, balancing the personal, the, uh, the professional, and the political. And if you do that nicely, uh, then uh, then of course you can always be smiling and have a good time.
2: Thank you so much, <laughs> Professor. I think it was great talking to you.
0: Okay, all the best, and uh, see you soon in the next year. Yeah. Okay, bye, Amrita. Thanks, thanks all of you who came and listened. Bye.
1: Thanks for listening to this episode of The Professor Will See You Now, the second season of the YIF podcast. Tune into the next episode for another exciting conversation with Professor Arun Kumar Singh, who is a former ambassador of India to the US and teaches the course Indian Foreign Policy Challenges and Responses at the YIF. Follow us on Instagram at Young India Fellowship to stay updated about our admissions, events and engagements. You can also check out our channel on YouTube for video editions of the YIF podcast.